Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, we're catching up with Cub member Lee Rust. Lee has been a member for over four years and is the co-founder and director of Australian Louvre window manufacturing company, Safety Line Jalousi. Lee and his brother, Nathan, started the company in 2010 from their family garage and since then now operate out of a 2,000 square meter factory with over 50 staff. We had a brilliant conversation. Lee shared his story of how he scaled the company so rapidly. Uh, He spoke about the importance of family over business and the importance of a business owner reflecting and having self-awareness on what it is they actually want to accomplish in life within business and outside of business. It was a really eye-opening conversation, very inspiring. I hope you enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Mr. Lee Russ, one of our longest standing members and one of uh, one of the cub models, I'd say, because you're pretty much on most of the advertising we use on digital and, and all that. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for finally coming. Yeah. It's, taken, it's taken a while. It took me having to give you a few drinks at uh, last week's Cub Social to, <laughs> to get you on. But but um, no, I'm very, very happy and proud to have you today because um, – I mean, how long ago did you join now? I think it's been nearly four years. Yeah, it's a long time. And and when you joined, um, I mean, you were already incredibly successful, but what you've accomplished in the past four years um, is is really remarkable, especially in such a uh, – like a, a random niche like, like yours, you know what I mean? Like you're one of one at Cub in what you do. But why don't you introduce Safety Line Jalousy and, and what exactly uh, you do and what it is just so uh, the listeners can understand? Yep, all right. Well, so we're an Australian manufacturing company and Safety Line Jalousy is a predominantly a louver window system. Um, but what we've done with our system is tailor it to more the commercial market. So your traditional louvers that you'd see in a beach house or, or, the, or the like, uh, we've taken all the advantages of a louver but turned it into a commercially usable product and fixed all the faults that louvers had. So we're watertight, airtight, acoustically rated, larger spans. So we've really sort of taken on the, the commercial market by storm. And, and yeah, so that's what you did. You you, you took a typically uh, what you call retail product? Yeah, correct. And, and made it commercial? Yes. And and so I said Jalousi, it's Jalousi. Jalousi, what is yeah. ju- What's Jalousi? So it's actually French. So Sounds like juicy. Yeah, it's actually, it comes from the old French noun of jealousy. So to permit one to see without being seen, mm-hmm. hence looking through louvers. Okay, so, that's good. Is that, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Who came up with that? Uh, the French. It's a French word. So nah. in, <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it the brand of the company? Correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But you created Safety Line? No, so Safety Line Jalousie was their, was their brand, I guess, of this product and we brought it to Australia and we thought instead of reinventing the wheel, we'll just roll out with their oh, name. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. So this is a product that's made in France? It was designed in France, yeah. Yep. So we have the rights to distribute and manufacture in Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific. And 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 um, how did you end up – like how did you – like how does one go, you know what, I want to start a louver business? <laughs> you don't. Yeah. <laughs> how did that happen? I guess we, I never wanted to sell windows if you, yeah. could, if you could say that, but I always liked business. Business has always been a passion like doing, you know, growing something, doing deals and – and making things happen. But um, I guess my story starts, my dad owns a manufacturing company, Vergola, which is the opening and closing roof. And when I left school, I went to work for him and he said, 
no, you can't work for me, go get a trade. So I went and became a mechanic. Uh, did mechanics, went back, worked for my dad for a number of years and quickly realised that dad's business was always going to be dad's business and not mine and I didn't really feel fulfilled in that. And the way we found Jalousy was we were on a trip in Adelaide of all places and there was a French guy there and he had um, these louvers they were doing on a commercial tower and me and dad sort of got talking to him and we knew him uh, in, a, in a roundabout way and just stumbled across it. Dad said, what do you think? I was like, I don't want to sell windows. But brought it back and... So I just felt like the market had nothing in it and there was like a real niche and I thought we could make something of this. So that's pretty much how it started. It went over to France, brought it back and away Got, we got went. the licence. So went over to France, got the licence deal with them, yep. came back and started importing those yeah, things. that's it. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. and, and so how old were you at that point? Uh, this was 11 years ago now. So I was uh, 29. Gee, are you 40 now? Yeah, I'm 40. You literally look, I swear to you, 20, you look younger than I do. <laughs> Easily. Um, I didn't know. I think that. I just hide it well. No, no, I'm just losing my hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you started it with your brother then as well, is that correct? Yeah, so we started in a little two car garage, just yep. me and my brother. So Nate is his name? Nate, yeah, Nate. Nate, yeah. And Nate is how old? He's a bit younger? He's 36, four years, three okay. years younger. Okay, so the two two brothers weren't fulfilled by the old man, or the old man wasn't going to give away his business to them. So they went out and found their own business and set out to to take the, um, I guess, would you say the building building industry by storm or yeah, what I industry? Think, yeah, we tried to really, well, now we've learned what we've learned over the years, but we've really found a niche and we've sort of opened up, you know, designers' concepts and ideas of what they can do with louvers. Mm. It was very restricted before. So we've, I think we've really opened up a, opened up a window of opportunity. actually impacted the industry. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, they, I mean, the, the people, the the anyone who does the first of anything and has to kind of educate the market on it is always the one that benefits the most because they open up new opportunities. Yeah, it's probably cost the most to do that because educating a market takes time and effort and fucking this and that yeah. and you're going to get put down and all this stuff. Yeah. But once you do it, you're the one who did it. You've opened up your own market and then all the other lazy second people come through and follow just you. follow you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's tedious. Would you say you were one of the first kind oh, of to do that? We definitely were, yeah. We definitely got at the start when we had all our performance numbers and we were trying to get on these commercial towers. Everyone's like, you can't use louvers on commercial towers. So it was years and even to this day we still have to re-educate to say, no, the product works, here's the performance data, you can use it. And so, so just to clarify, you can put louvers on those big commercial towers? Yeah, correct. We're on York and George Street in the city. We're on, you know, 30-storey towers. We're on number one Bly Street up the very top. So, wow. Yeah, all the, oh, all exactly. the big buildings we're on. All so, the big dog buildings. Yeah, all the big dog buildings. Yeah, because yeah. and so who is primarily your your target market? Is it high-end developments or is it – because well, I'm assuming not all buildings put louvers on. No, they don't. But this is – I guess our our um, market approach has changed over the years and it's changed drastically over the last four years. So we were – at the start we were very residential focused because that's what we knew with my dad's business. So we just sort of followed suit. Um, we evolved into sort of, you know, fabricator and smaller residential market. And then eventually we sort of – I guess we found our niche and our big niche now is uh, education. So any any school – that's in New South Wales, Queensland or Victoria, predominantly has us for their natural ventilation choice. So, yeah, Department of uh, Education in Queensland, we are their standard choice and School Infrastructure in New South Wales, we are their standard choice. So oh, incredible. That's our, that's our definitely our bread and butter. And then the other jobs we chase is hospitals, aged care, multi-res towers like York and George. 
So it's it's actually primarily kind of government. It is yeah. uh, work, yeah. and then if you get that, you get also have the high end yeah. Lux towers. Yeah, correct. and I'm assuming they get it because like if you're facing west, you don't want the sun to be hitting the office or is, yeah, is well, right just or? natural wind. So when you've got an apartment, um, you know you have to have a certain gross floor area to ventilation. And oh, okay. the easiest way to get ventilation is louvers, where they couldn't use louvers before, but now with us they can. So instead of having say four awning windows in in an apartment, you can have one louver. Yeah. And still get the same ventilation. Yeah, and and business aside, tell us about you. You're from the northern beaches. You're married, got kids. What's going on? Yeah, northern beaches, boy. True and you were born there. True about uh, born at Belrose. Yeah, and um, you basically lived northern beaches my whole life. Live at Bayview now. Uh, married to a beautiful wife, Sarah. Three children, two boys and a little girl, eight, five, and three. So they keep me, they keep me busy. And I guess that's probably the reason I do what I do is. For my children and my my family, I think that's the the pinnacle for me is family first, and then everything else after that. I was going to ask you that. How old were you when you had the, your first? Thirty one. So I was pretty soon after you started the business. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Do you feel that that gave you? I mean, I can't say I can't speak from experience, but do you feel like it gave you additional motivation to work harder once you had a child? Or yeah, I think. I think you're – well, you've always had purpose but once you have a child your purpose shifts and your responsibility to that child is, you know, it, it, it gives you more responsibility so it gives you more of a driving force to make sure you can, uh, you know, do everything at your best ability to give that child everything possible. And do, on, on the flip side, do you feel that it makes you more or less risk averse to have, you know, when you've got your – a family and young children and, and that type of thing. Do you feel like, you know, oh, I can't take too big a risk because I can't risk losing this great thing I've built for them? Or do you feel that that doesn't affect it? Um, I think, well, my personality type, I don't think it affected. I think I've always believed in myself enough to take the big risks mm-hmm. to know that even if it didn't work, I would have a, a plan B mm-hmm. to sort of make something work. So, um you know, even after I had my my children, I still did skydiving. I still <laughs> did cage fighting. Yeah. So I think that risk part of me is always there. Yeah, you are yeah. a bit of a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> now I was just curious. <laughs> I, I'm always really curious as to to how um, a family impacts um, like a business owner. There's a lot of like there's a lot of studies on uh, the world's billionaires uh, that have said that having a stable partner at home. Um, is one of the largest contributors to people with with huge or ultimate success. Um, and I've always been curious about if children impact the decisions, the financial decisions and risks. You know, it's an area I actually don't know much about it and uh, really obviously I have no experience in it. But, but it's something that I reckon people should look more into. It's just like how does having a family and, and children or even just a husband or a wife mm. impact someone's uh, – Business ability, even I think definitely having a stable like relationship at home, helps. someone to bounce ideas off that's not involved in your work day to day. It's just that sounding board and that that you know person of reason. And sometimes you, your ego can get carried away, and then your wife will chop it down quickly. So it's good to have that that balance, you know. So and so do you talk about a business with your wife when you get home? Like, do you ask for the opinion of things you're unsure about? I I try to not talk about business with her because I feel like if I come home, then it just business and family all rolls into one. So I try and keep pretty defined, you know, if I'm at work, it's work. When I'm at home, it's home. It's more family orientated. But if there are bigger issues, yeah, I'd run them by her. But we, um, 
I try not to sort of go into the nitty gritty of it. It's mm-hmm. more about what does she feel, how, what, how should we yeah. make these decisions. She's quite intuitive, is she? Very intuitive, yeah. yeah. Some, some people have that, that kind of uh, that intuition. Even in, in our team at Cub, uh, like uh, Alice, for example, is incredibly intuitive. If we have a new team member join and she says, or if she hired them, they're 100% they're always great. But if someone joins that someone else hired, she'll be like, yeah, that, 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 trust me, they're, they're, they're good, they're going to fit with us. Well, they're not. And she's always bang on the money. Yeah. She's always right. Some people just have that intuition. If you have a wife with great intuition or a husband with great intuition, like that would be incredibly um, valuable. Yeah, and particularly like looking from the outside and also what they have is a, a deep understanding of you mm. personally. It's not the business. Yeah. They know you. Yeah, and they're able to. They they can probably nitpick it. Mm, this is why. This is how he's gotten there. But he's, you know, he's normally he's biased towards this, and he's prone towards doing this. So maybe I should try and help him see, you know, see it from a different angle. Yeah, and my wife does that really well. She knows if I start to go off on a tangent or if I get quite aggressive about a situation at work, she'll be like, "Hey, yeah, don't make any rash decisions. Just yeah. stop and think about it." But, but and that's so. a normal and common response. Like I do that. Mm. You know, getting. Not aggressive in a physical sense, but yeah, getting no. aggressive um, uh, toward like in response to to a threat or an yes. attack. It's like a defense mechanism. Yeah. Like it gives you that extra motivation to do anything to fix it or to yeah, win or exactly. to exactly. And yeah. and the, having that counter would be. I need to get a wife. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sounds important. Yeah, call out for a wife. Yeah. Right yeah. If any listeners are listening, go to cub.club forward slash podcast. Find Daniel a wife today. Um, <laughs> Um, awesome. And and so you briefly mentioned before um, your niche. You found your niche. And when you started the business, you you know, you went into what you knew, which was uh, residential, which is obviously the obvious first choice to, to move into. And I guess how long do you f- feel that it took you to find uh, your niche? And actually how did you find that your niche was government jobs, schools and hospitals? Um, I think it's just trial and error and I think we, I think what we did really well was adapt. So we trialled the residential market within sort of 18 months. I was like, this is rubbish, it's not going to work. Why so though? There was just no sales and the, I guess the price per unit, you know, for a house, you could sell one window for $1,000. You've got to sell a lot of windows for yeah. $1,000 and a lot of clients and it was just a headache. So the business model didn't work. didn't work, no. Yeah. So then we looked at competitors in the market and they all went through fabricators. So they had like their products in other people's showrooms. So we tried that because I thought, well, they're doing well, so let's try that. Did that for a little while and it just wasn't working either. And then our friend Kevin Rudd did the BER program, the Building the Education Revolution, where he basically built school halls um, on, you know, thousands of schools around around the country and then we started seeing architects looking for products with performance for these school halls to get ventilation with security. And that's sort of when I went, ah, oh, this is where we need to be. So then we started really honing our efforts in on architects, getting specified on the schools. And then we sort of evolved a bit further from that and thought, well, where's the money coming from? Let's follow the money trail. Architects are designing it, but who's paying for these things? Government. So that's when we went and lobbied hard with government to make ourselves a standard item in all the schools. And, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It was probably, you know, two, three-year process. Um, and the last four years has been yeah, really successful for us in that. And when you say lobby hard for government, what do you mean by that? 
We'll try and get the standards changed and the codes changed and to allow us to become part of the documentation so that when an architect gets a brief from government says build X school hall in wherever it may be, they have a, a list of products which are approved and we want it to be on that approved list. How so do you get on it? Lobbying. Call up Kate Rudd. <laughs> yeah, call up yeah, Kate Rudd. put me on your list. Well, that's the thing. So federal, it all works, you know, you've got federal and state level. So you've got to go to each state level in the government architects or government specifiers uh, realms and obviously get them to buy into the product and make sure it's fit for purpose. And I think that's what we did really well. The product fitted the purpose at the time and now it's just been rolled out as a standard item. And so what does that mean for your staffing team then? Because I know you've got a team of around 50 people now and your jobs are primarily these, you know, these government rolled out jobs and, and whatnot. Does that mean that majority of your team would be in the actual manufacturing? Oh, no, because you don't manufacture. What, what, yeah, we manufacture. You do yeah. manufacture. Yeah. Uh, so would that primarily they be in the manufacturing of the product because you don't need a huge sales team, do you? Because you've, you're already on the government lists and yeah. it's kind of genius what you've, yeah, you kind of built a free sales team. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. So what our, yeah, our prominent, our predominant staff is um, factory based. So there's probably 35 plus factory. Then we have admin staff and then we have a business manager in each state. So we're located in Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, and we have um, back-end staff in Malaysia through um, – A.S. White, who's, who's a, a member. Who's a member. Dan Brees. So that was one of the good contacts I made early on. So, yeah, predominantly we just have our, our business managers in each state manage the government contracts and the, the group of architects who deal with government predominantly. So that's yeah, – And how big is the factory now? Because I, I, the word on the grapevine at Cub is that you've got a new, a new and improved <laughs> one. Yeah, about 2,500 square metres now in Mona Vale. So it's a – Geez, that's a big yeah. factory. Yeah, we started in 150 square metres, little shed, and wow. then we've moved to 2,500 square metres. So it's What's been... the feeling like when you first moved into that big new factory? Like what was the <laughs> – you know what I'm relating it to? When you when like when I first renovated my apartment, I'd walk in, I was like, "Oh, this is mad! Like, can't believe this is my." You know, what's the feeling? But you, obviously, that would be more sentimental because you're like, "I built this." You know, yeah. Like, I, I felt like um, I said to my brother, "I said I feel like we're finally growing up. Yeah. <laughs> like we've put our big boy pants <laughs> yeah. on." You know, like we went through these little factories and still sort of having dad's help behind us to sort of you know cutting the umbilical cord and moving to our massive facility. And it's all ours. And I was mm. like, "Wow, this is." We've done it. This is us, and yeah. we've done it all by ourselves. And yeah. you know, put our big boy pants on, and we're here. Yeah, so. yeah. You feel it's like a feeling of independence. Yeah, sense of a lot of pride too, because yeah. it was a brand new facility. It was massive, and you know, it was just it was a very proud oh, that's, moment. That's incredible. And and when you grow the the actually random question, would you feel more proud? What gives you a better feeling when you make cash? Or when you look at things you've built and have some sort of emotional. Oh, I think the things I've built for sure. Yeah. yeah. That like emotional, like, wow, I did yeah. this. Like that is self-accomplishment. Definitely. I think this is the thing. When I was in my 30s, money used to be a big driver for me. Mm. You know, I think the cash money is what I sort of chased. And yeah. as I evolved, I think as a person and the business evolved, the money doesn't really matter now. And it might sound cliche or whatever it is, but I judge my success now on my freedom to do what I want to do. So if I have time to spend more time with my family, that's how I judge my success. If I have to be at work every day grinding away, that's not success. So the And so what do your work, what does a work day for you look like or what does a typical week for you look like? Well, I've, I've really tried to structure my life 
so that family is first. So I do a lot of personal work in the morning. So usually I get up at 4.30 and I'll train from 5 to 6. And then from 6 to 7 is basically my time. I'll do some meditation, some journaling, sort of some reflection time, have a coffee at the cafe, and that's my time. Then I go home and it's family time. So I get the kids up, we have breakfast, get ready for school, then off to school we go. And I take the kids to school most days, which is, you know, it's a little bit of special time with the kids. You know, it's not much, but it's it's a lot. Yeah, so, no, I think yeah. it's a lot. My dad never took me to school. Yeah. <laughs> he only picked me up like I think twice in my entire life and both times were to take me to the farm and yeah. that was on like a Thursday so I had to miss yeah. school the next yeah. day. <laughs> and, um, and in building then, so family, you've really prioritised family first. 100%, yeah. And in was there something that taught you to do that or was it, yeah, did well, you have an example as d- different? Um, or I think, well, my dad worked very hard in the early days when we were young to build a business, a manufacturing company from nothing. He had no backing. You know, I was very lucky to have him back me and my brother in, you know, financially as well. He had nothing. He sold his car. He sold everything to start his business. So he really did the grind, you know, and I'm very grateful for what he did. But I guess him not being around as much as I would have liked as a a child, I sort of thought I want to make sure I can give that to my children because time is everything. Once they grow, they're gone. Like we grow, you turn into an adult, it's finished. (laughs) So you suckers. Yeah, the children are like so small for so little. So that was sort of one of the things. And there was another man named Stephen Geddes. I was at a, a show early on in um, the Jalousie days and he came up to me and said, oh, you look like you're doing great things. And we were just chatting. He was in the glass industry. He said, do you have uh, married or children? And I said, oh, no, not yet. You know, I've got to get this business going. He said, that's good, mate, but let me tell you one thing. One thing I regret in my life is not being there for my children. When you, when you have children, make sure you're there. Business will be there, but children won't when you get older. And I thought... Didn't think much of it at that night. And as soon as I had my son, I remember thinking of this guy, this guy and I was like, holy shit. Genius. Genius, yeah. And that, he, I can still remember his face. Like I met him once, twice maybe. Wow. And he's just stayed in my, like my brain forever. So I'm very thankful to him. Yeah, 100% family. Yeah. Families without a doubt. First, and when you were growing your team, because uh, obviously it just started you and your brother, I guess what were some of the – difficulties you encountered or lessons you learned in having to grow a, a larger team? I think one of the biggest things is letting go of control is um, you can't grow a business if you want to control everything. And I think a lot of small businesses, medium businesses, you know, the, the owner wants to be involved in every decision day to day. And it's so restrictive of your growth. You have to get good people around you and trust them to do the job and give them control of certain areas and allow you to be the business owner and go and find new opportunity and grow the thing. So, And did you come up, did you have to create um, like in expanding and, and with bringing on new staff, did you have to create much uh, more improved and detailed operation manuals? Yeah, massively. Yeah, that's it's still an evolving thing. So because we just started, me and my brother, we just, you know, I'll just ring him, what are we doing here? What are we doing there? So we had to, we've basically just had to start and, and create systems and create protocols and just grow and learn as we go and I don't admit I'm the smartest person in the room ever and if I employ someone I'll always employ someone smarter than me hopefully because then they add so much more value to my team I think that's an important lesson as well is try and find people who are smarter and from different fields like me being in the construction industry I try not to hire people from the construction industry I want to employ someone from advertising or finance or whatever it may be because they come in with such a different lens it's like you know, any anyone in construction, we know we know the industry. It's the same thing. Everyone knows the same, you know, yeah. 
way yeah. to it's, go it's, about it. It's the same kind of agreed upon, uh, like, oh, that's just the way it's done. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And you bring in these different people from different fields. I, like one of my best performing sales guy was advertising. The other one's from travel, you know, nothing yeah. to do with windows at all. Yeah. But the, the knowledge and perspective they bring is just, you know, amazing. And is that something you've enjoyed at Cub, the fact that you meet I guess, entrepreneurs of all different industries. Definitely. That's probably one of the my highlights of Cub is just talking to people that I would probably never talk to because I'm stuck in the construction bubble. And mm. just here, like my first year at Cub, I had, you know, Alexi from um, Fubi. We did content yeah. writing with him. That's, that was foreign to me. Yeah. You know, I employed, I've got three staff now. He does ours in, as well. Yeah. yeah. I've got now three staff over in Malaysia from uh, Dan from AS White, which is – I never thought about having offshore staff. And from that, now we have a factory in Malaysia as well. We have a joint venture with a factory over there as well, which led on from having oh, the staff there. So, See, those are the things. People underestimate just being surrounded by just not the right people, just others in similar positions to you, I guess, um, or on the same path to you. And, you know, you make one friendship, two friendships, you don't know what they're going to bring to you. Mm. You know, it's 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 kind of like you know that a relationship is valuable, but the rest is a kinder surprise. Yeah. You know, like I don't know what I'm gonna get, but it's gonna be something cool. Cub kinder surprise. I like yeah. That. <laughs> That's gonna be our new marketing campaign. Yeah. Cub. It's like a kinder surprise for business. <laughs> <laughs> and so you grew your team, you did your operations. One thing that I found was that if we were hiring people, particularly back in Cub's early days, we didn't have our job descriptions and roles down packed. We didn't have the systems and procedures or even services <laughs> that, that were written down in place. And that would always affect – that would that it resulted for me in, at the beginning, a high staff turnover um, because we weren't able to communicate what was needed done mm. and, and people you – know, no one knew. Yeah. I, f- I found that once operations got more clear um, and job roles got more clear – that then your hiring success rate skyrockets. Was that something you found? Yeah, definitely. Or? I agree with that. It's, um, we sort of learn on the fly but I've, I just feel it's something you don't know until you, until you know and you mm. just have to adapt quickly. And I'm, I'm one for sort of hiring and you know, bringing in professionals or in those niche fields and saying get a, get a HR person in, let's write the documents, you know, and, and doing things like that because I don't know those procedures and I, I don't want to know them. So That's interesting. In right so you'll bring in like a consultant for HR. Can you Correct. set this up for us? Yeah. I, oh, you should give me the person you use because I want to do that yeah, as well. Yeah, Karen, she's a lovely lady and oh, she just came in and cleaned it all up, streamlined it all, went through all employment contracts. Really? Procedures. Oh, that's what I need. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, and obviously you're saying that like windows, louvers, like it's not a sexy industry. But, you, but you're attracting great people and, and like you said, you're attracting people from different industries, which means that you must have a great culture, you know, a culture that somehow facilitates uh, something that people like or the people yeah. that work for What is that culture? I think family. Like one of my biggest things is family but we also run – my business is a family business. I run it with my brother. Yeah, which it is, yeah. Running a business with my father before that. And, you know, most of my staff, like I've had Mandy with me for 11 years. So my, my, I've had, my dad's had people with him for 30 years. So I think our culture is really about treating people like family, respecting them and valuing them and not treating them like employees but treating them like part of the, you know, part of the ownership team because once you give people ownership, it's theirs and then they'll stay. Mm. So. And ownership is almost like 
giving them kind of the responsibility. Like, yeah, you have ownership over this part. This is yours. Like, yeah. run that. And, and that makes them work harder, yeah. I guess. Yeah, definitely. And probably it gives them – it would give them a higher sense of self-satisfaction as, it, as you have self-satisfaction. Yeah. Kind of so do, so do they. Yeah. And how do you – um, what are things you'd encourage in your team? You know, uh, I guess the question is how would you get uh, a travel guy, an advertising guy and all these type of people to come to a window company? What, what, what's the, what's the um, appeal or what's the pitch? Well, I guess I think this, the sales team or the business managers saw opportunity. Uh, that's why they're, I guess, they're, they're smart people and they could see this was a niche and they could see they could really… Make cash. Know, yeah, make cash. Yeah, and, and we, you know, we offer a… A healthy commission structure, which is uncapped, which is not really heard of in our industry. Um, so whatever they do, they they whatever they sell, they achieve. And it's you know I think um, being the industry we're in, it's not um, I guess employees aren't looked after as much as they probably should be in the in the sales realm of construction. So I think we've done a, a really good model there that attracted them. Awesome. And you keep mentioning Nath, your brother. I mean, I know Nath; he's a legend. Um, but is it difficult to work with your brother or do you guys have an agreement upon who is in which position? Like how, how does that work? Yeah, it's definitely family is um, it's a double-edged sword. I think it's like the best thing you can ever do because the trust and belief in each other is, you know, it's unrivaled. It's like, I know Nath always has my back, like in life, in business, in everything He's my brother. And that's, you know, that's, um, that's how it is. That's how it is, yeah. But then I think that the way, you know, business has its ups and downs and it brings stress and you're working with each other, you hang out with each other, so there is definitely tension. But I think what we've done really well is define our roles and really stay in clear lanes. So he's head of operations and I'm head of sales marketing, basically the general manager. So I've got my box, he's got his box. And day to day we are employees in the business. Outside of that we are business owners. Yes, we're going to have different conversations. But when it comes to our staff, he runs operations, I run sales and marketing. So we stay in our lanes just like any other employee would. And I think that's where that level of trust and um, respect, you know, for each other's roles is – I think that's why it works so well. Yeah. And you know what? That's a very consistent response to to that question um, with a lot of the other guests that have either business partners that are husbands, wives, family members or even just business partners in general – when they have very, very clear understanding of who's doing what, that seems to be the best kind of system for, for, for success. Yeah, I think separating the ownership from the role too is, is very crucial. You can both be owners but it doesn't mean you walk around and boss everyone around. You all have a role to do, be it receptionist to factory hand or whatever. Everyone has a role to make the machine tick. Outside of that, yes, we're owners. That's different conversations. Yeah, and that's probably something that a lot of business owners, like I, I have never really thought of that. Mm. You know, it's a really interesting thought. It's like, okay, yeah, I am the owner, but what is my role? What, what, what? Am, like if you could write down your role, like I've never done that. I've never sat down and been like, hey, my role is this, these are the things that I need to do on a daily basis. You know, it's a really interesting thought. Yeah. You'd probably become more effective. I'd probably become more effective. You do. That. I've just, I've recently done a thing with a team where I sent a, I sent everyone a blank piece of paper and said, write me a role. And they really? said, what do you mean? I said, tell me what you do. I want to know what everyone does in my company. Oh, but you like my job description. I said, no, write me a role. Write me a task. Write me who you report to and who's in your 
um, you know, who's in your who's in your teams. It'd be so interesting to see I've what got, come, I've got all the data back. now, so I want to see. But um, it's good because I want to, you know, we we sit there and say, oh, your role is X, but they're in it day to day. It's not probably not what we always think as the owner. So, yeah, oh, I fully yeah. agree. One of the things that um, I do a lot in my one-on-one meetings with the team is ask them about other people. I ask them about what are the others doing, how are they feeling, what are they? It's kind of different, but but it's the commonality is that you're 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 not seeing what you see from the outside. You're seeing what other people are seeing and, and getting different perspectives on the company. Yeah, I always find that really really valuable. And with COVID, the construction industry was not too bad during COVID. How did you find it? Did the schools and hospitals and government projects stop the production uh, or stop construction of uh, these buildings or how was COVID for you? Well, when, yeah, when first when COVID first came around, we actually had record month after record month. So, you know, we put that down to all the previous work we'd done because our cycle, our sales cycle is probably 18 months. By the time the product, project is designed to actually manufactured, could be 18 months. So we were at the back end of a lot of work. So we were all through COVID like, just on fire. It was ridiculous. Okay. So, okay, so you had the opposite to everyone. We were, yeah, the opposite. But then at the end of um, last year, things started to slow down a little bit because I think tenders in Australia on general were down about 40%. So that uncertainty and, you know, no students coming over from from overseas. So a lot of that construction stopped. So And then waiting for the federal budget to be released, which was released last month. So now that's been released, all the funds have been um, assigned, allocated. Assigned, yeah. Now all the schools are starting up again. So we've had a bit of a slower start to the year than I would have liked, but it's starting to ramp up again, which is good. And so, were there any uh, key lessons that COVID brought you that uh, things that uh, you wouldn't have learned otherwise? Yeah, probably. I probably was a little bit naive thinking when COVID came how well we were doing. I sort of put the blinkers on a little bit and didn't want to look outside and sort of look too far to the future because we were just so busy with the work. But something I should have done is probably future-proofed us a little bit more to look at the pipelines, you know, a year ahead and think where are we going to go? Is the COVID hangover going to be a year later for us? So I didn't do that very well and something I would I'd definitely learn in the future. I was watching uh, an interview on YouTube the other day with Bernard Arnault, the guy that owns LVMH, who, which I didn't know, was the richest man in the world, overtook Bezos a couple of days ago, but then Bezos took over again. But um, um, he said something really interesting in re- regarding uh, looking to the future. He said, oh, fuck, I've got to remember what he said now. But, but he said something like, we look, uh, we're always optimistic in regards to our long-term vision of the company. But we're always, we always act and plan pessimistic for our short-term Mm. Uh, you know, the next year, the next two years, the next three years. You know, we're always planning for bad. We're mm. always planning for something to go wrong. For we're optimistic, but our planning and our budgeting is in a, is done for pessimistic times. Yeah. And that's really interesting. A lot of very wealthy people uh, that I know uh, say a very similar. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with thing. that. Yeah, yeah me I've got, too. I've got some big three to five year plans, which are, you know, they're looking really good and healthy. But then these next twelve months, I've sort of planned. Plan the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it makes sense. And also, um, like even when 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 Cub was uh, younger, um, there was cash coming in, and I wasn't I wasn't budging anything. I was yeah, do this, do yeah. this. It was money was going out, and then you you know you hear these amazing people 
have built these huge companies and the importance of, no, no, you've got to be, you know, you've got to gear up. It's about survival. It's about how long you can keep this company going for and the lessons you can accumulate, accumulate along that time. And once you change the aim of the game to, to survival, to, to the length, the age of your company, that you know, you, you change your perspective, all of a sudden you start acting in a way that future-proofs Mm. your company and then it's kind of a toggle you know you've got to toggle between yeah okay future proofing and survival as well as growth and risk that's mm. related to yeah you know and it's kind of a, a playing between those two dials of yeah. okay let's just hope a pandemic doesn't come <laughs> when we're hitting the growth yeah. you know like and, and 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 let's hope one comes if it does after we've uh, mm. toggled the safety and and, and what's it called? I yeah. don't know if that made sense yeah, at all. Did, yeah, I think you know the other important thing about that is you. I think having an end result for your business as well. Like what I've learned over eleven years is, you can't. I don't know. Some people might be able to, but you can't just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and growing and growing. Like it gets tiring, and I think you need to have like an end result. What are you comfortable with? Where do you want the business to be? Like what does it look like when you have are fully comfortable with it and is that achievable? So I think a lot of people get stuck in that grind. Ten years, twenty years later, you look up, you think, "Fuck, I've missed half my life." Like, yeah, how me, much do I actually need? That's right. Like, what is the lifestyle you want? Like, what do you need out of this yeah. business? And yeah, I don't need to be Bernardo. No, maybe I just want to be able to have a nice house in the Northern Beaches, send my kids to good schools. Yeah. You know, like you don't know. Yeah, and and you're right because if you do keep whatever you focus on in life. Is kind of what's going to get you know is is what's going to it's what's going to have the most of your effort mm. and therefore is probably what's going to benefit the most in your life. If you are solely focused on your business twenty four seven forever, you know your family life will suffer. Mm. You know you've got to find and if not, there's no right or wrong balance. It's just kind of like you need to decide on the balance between um, your balance. Yeah, you know correct. how much of my life do I want to give my my aspirations or business, how much do I give my family and, and even how much do I give myself? Yeah. Because yeah. you do a lot of health. Yeah. Um, well, I think without your own health and your own, you know, self-sanity, you're no good for anyone else. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't do the self-work because they're worried they're being selfish. But I think it's the most important work. If you can get your own brain clear and your own emotions in check, you're going to be a better husband, better father, better business leader. I think it's a m- massive missing piece, especially in um, – you know, middle-aged men, I guess. You could call me a middle-aged man. But I think it's a lot of um, a lot of the self-work, being at fitness and, you know, clarity and meditation and all this kind of stuff. I think it's so important for us so we can turn up to be better leaders and, and better fathers and better husbands. Yeah. yeah. I think having that understanding of, of yourself and your thoughts, like uh, you mentioned you do, was it meditation or yoga? Uh, meditation and journaling. And and what do you find that gives you? Just a bit of clarity. It's like journaling's hard. I don't know if, if anyone's listening does journaling or tries journaling, but you ask yourself some pretty hard questions, and you know, the the answers that you get probably aren't the ones you you might think or actually want. But it's um when you get it out on paper, it becomes quite real. And there's lots to work on. You know, everyone's got lots to work on. It's just a matter of who's willing to do that work. You know, I journal, but almost for different reasons. I journal, I don't write like long things. I write lessons in relations to the day or in, I don't do it every day. It's just when there's big lessons. 
But I do it more so because I think, fuck, imagine when I'm 80, I'll have like 50 books of journals with all these lessons that I've given my grandkids be like, here, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is all I'm leaving yeah. you. <laughs> Everything else going to charity, yeah. suckers. <laughs> you get books. <laughs> but wouldn't like that be cool? That. Imagine yeah. like, imagine, yeah, your life's lessons. Yeah. In That's these cool. hundreds of books, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. I already have about 10 of them. And, you know, I've got a safe, in, big fat safe in my room. Yeah. My watches are in socks in my drawers, but my books are in the safe. Oh, really? I, swear. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. I should probably toss them in, but yeah. that's true. That's cool. Yeah, no one, yeah. no one, yeah, please don't steal my watches. And, and so when you journal, what type of, like, what type of questions are you asking yourself? Well, there's a lot to be about, like, what, what sort of father do I want to be? Other questions will be like, you know, why does my son trigger me in this way? Like they're pretty hard questions to ask yourself. Like why do I get angry? And then I'll just keep whatever comes into my head. Like is it something that happened when I was younger that annoys me? Or you know, I ask myself those kind of questions. Like how can I be a better father? Or how can I be a better husband? Why did I do that last time? Big questions. Yeah. And, and actually, funny enough, they're not to do with business. No. That's, my journal is pretty much no business. So I find business quite it's, – it's not easy. Simple. But it's – yeah, it is more simple. It's usually maths. Business is maths mm. where relationships are emotions and emotions are hard to control. You know? And can affect the maths. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, that's the sort of questions I ask is like what do I want to do with my life? Like what, what is this? What sort of person do I want to be? I'm trying to define me and like how I father my children, how, my, how I turn up as a husband. Those and are the kind of questions. When did you start doing that? Um, that's not a that's young men typically don't no, don't sit there. Probably and two years ago, I started on a a bit of a you know a self awakening, I guess. You know, having three children, feeling a bit burnt out with business, and you know, just I didn't feel like I was living to my full potential as a as a human, not just as a business leader, but like a human being. I felt like I had more to offer. Um, you know, I partied a lot back in my younger days, and I felt like that wasn't serving me well anymore. So mm. I went on this bit of Discovery, you know, I still like to have fun, don't get me wrong, <laughs> as a few of the cub people probably see. But, um, you know, I think that self-discovery probably happened two years ago. I joined a course called Rising Kings. It's all about sort of middle-aged men, I guess, you know, trying to be better versions of themselves. And, um, yeah, I've stayed on that journey and it's been been really helpful. Long, long way to go and I think it's never-ending. I think till the day I die we'll still be trying to be a better person. But I think if we keep that end goal in sight just to be better every day, in some way, shape or form, I think it's a pretty powerful thing. No, I agree. And, you know, like when people are younger and they do um, party a lot or they might drink a lot or whatever they're doing, the older you get, the more you're like, God, I just wasted so much time. Like that was nothing good came from, mm. nothing good for uh, my life came from that. You know, it's, it's, it's almost, um, I was actually pretty lucky because I got into business very, very young and quickly not that I didn't get my stint in, but <laughs> but I just think that, yeah, that's a big lesson. You know, you want to start moving into a positive mm. direction in life as, as quickly as possible. And and what you're really describing is self-reflection. It's just mm. looking at yourself and just sorting out your thoughts. Yeah, well, you, you can't lie to the man in the mirror. You mm. know, you look in the mirror and you might portray this awesome business leader and on the outside I might look all fantastic, but you can't lie to yourself. You've got to mm. be able to look at yourself and be happy with that person you know inside am i turning up to be the best father husband business leader person that i can be mm. and i said no a few years ago so i've been on that journey ever since that's amazing and has your life gotten better it's definitely gotten better yeah <laughs> self-awareness is definitely higher 
<laughs> you know, like I catch myself a lot more. Think, oh, you are a dickhead. Yeah. And I try and catch. I think that's the biggest thing. I still do stupid things all the time. You know. I'm still, yeah, but that's life. Yeah, it is. You know what I did two days ago? <laughs> this was quite possibly the most embarrassing, like most embarrassed I've ever been on myself. I went onto my Instagram, and I deleted. I, I went through all the old posts, like all the way down to 2012, which I would have been 20. <laughs> You know, because that's when Instagram must have started in 2012. Yeah. That's when it started for me. And I went through all the posts, the the comments, and I just – I had 900 posts. I now have 100 and something. And I literally – if you want to humble yourself, go through your old social media and look at the person you were because you were a piece of shit yeah. back in the day. I, you I, to, I was like, how did anyone like me? I, was like, I, I hate myself a little more <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I, I cringe at some of my old yeah. photos. I'm like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> what was I thinking? Uh, I really, I think people should do it. That's how you know you've grown up when you yeah. delete your old stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The new Daniel Hakim. The new Daniel <laughs> 2.0. Yeah. Mate, new and improved. Yeah. Oh, man, thank you so much for today. This has been fantastic and and um, um, uh, th- thank you for being honest about sharing also a lot of the last parts about about you know how you – how you look to constantly improve. I think that's things that people don't often share and but it's things that people need to hear because yeah. um, I think that's what comes with the work though. The more you self-reflect, the more comfortable you get about talking about it and it's not uncomfortable anymore because you're becoming more happy with the person you want to be and you know, you're striving to be. It's kind of like a confident guy wearing a pink shirt. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Like, oh, fuck, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, why don't you share with us uh, your greatest business lesson today? Um, my greatest business lesson, probably one of the defining moments is you have to find what product or service you're selling, what that end client is, like what is your niche, what is your niche and then you have to hone all your energy on that. You know, like in my early days we shotgun approached everything. I went after every market possible and when you stretch yourself so thin, you're never going to be successful in what you, you truly need to do and I think the quicker you can define who, what, where you need to be and where you need to go and place that product or service or whatever it may be, the quicker business will become easier. A hundred percent. It's like putting the nail right in the right position then whacking the hammer on it and bolting that thing together. And what about – do you read? Yeah, well, I wasn't a reader until about two years, two years ago. ago. (laughs) (laughs) Started reading some self-help. I've read – I've probably read like – more books than the last two years I've read in my entire life, to be honest. <laughs> so, yeah. And did you have, I guess, uh, one or two favourites that you think people should Yeah, wh- one should of the ones out? that really stands out for me is um, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. I don't know if you've read it or, or listened to it. It's pretty cool. It's got a lot of um, analogies of life, I guess, and, you know, how to be a better person and what actually matters in life. You know, we get caught up in a lot of the materialistic things and, end of the day we only have our health you know if you don't have your health you don't have anything and sort of it's not not that i guess in depth but it really highlighted to me some more things that i want to improve on um and the other book i really like is the way of the peaceful warrior it was um it's a bit of a story but it's got a lot of meaning to it as well about again being a better person and what's important in life so they're they're two that i'd really recommend okay and and they both highlight very much so 
what really is important. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. And did the monk actually have a Ferrari? He did. He yeah. did. So was he some rich guy? Correct. Something went wrong in his life? Yeah, he got high, sick? Yeah, high flyer he, in New York and yeah. Yeah, he started to get really unwell. Yeah. He went on this journey of self-discovery. and Be- Became um, a um, monk. Yeah, became a monk and travelled and just spread the word and yeah, he was the most happy he's ever been. So See, that's a, that's a book title that really describes the story. You yeah. Know? It's kind of like Toys R Us. You know what they sell, like. Yeah. <laughs> the monk who sold his Ferrari, yeah. you know what that story is yeah. about. Yeah, it was I, lo- good. I love it. And um, and look, you. I'm, I mean, I know you've had lots of different uh, dealings with the clubs, with Cub and, and different members. I guess how would you say Cub has impacted uh, your life, yourself or your business um, uh, in your time? Well, I think it impacted my business massively in the first year. Like I said earlier, we, you know, put me on a path of, you know, offshore staffing and just – it really opened my my um my eyes up to so many different opportunities that were out there and way people were doing business in other arenas and I was like, well, the construction industry needs this. So that for that it was you know fantastic, and for me personally, it did it, it helped me give me more confidence in who I was and talking to other people, bouncing ideas off people. It gave me a bit of sense of of worth, I guess, in the business world because I was a bit sheltered just being you know on the northern beaches in my dad's business. So. Stepping outside that and, you know, having people ask me questions, it gave me, you know, a bit of self-confidence. Was, it's been fantastic. Awesome. Thank you, man. It's so good to hear. And obviously, you know, you're a loved member and we're incredibly proud um, to have you as all the members in our team are in this community. Um, uh, to all the listeners, if you want to learn more about Lee or even reach out and get in contact, go to cub.club forward slash podcast uh, and you will find it there. Um, Lee, Thank you so much uh, for today, for your time, for your years at the club. Uh, You're an incredibly special human being and uh, I think this episode really shows that. Thanks for having me, mate. I love being part of the club and I love all you guys. So thanks for having me. Thank you to the listeners. Hope you enjoyed the show.